Brew Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the Riptide. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com. for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my Bruin brothers and sisters. Greetings, cretins. It's hey, good everyone. To be back. Welcome, welcome back, uh, Porno Steve. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good to be back. Uh, yeah, it's been a long time. Been a while. Uh, you've been, uh, strangely enough, I haven't missed that mustache. It's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, I did really. You're just jealous oh. you can't grow such a fine porno stash. That is true. Yeah. That is true. Somebody's that's what, that's what killed your porn career, John. That yeah, that may have been it. I'll I'll that was part of it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Certain other small factors perhaps involved, but uh we won't go yeah, into that. It was right, most yeah. stash, let's be real. It's cold <laughs> on those sets, is what I've what I've yeah, 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 yeah. Cold. Colder than you'd think. Yeah. <laughs> you'd think they keep it warm, but uh <laughs> perhaps not. It's not too early for a beer, right? Never. That's right. Yes, I got my brew in the handy dandy stainless steel cup it says steve on it or something um slw brewing company which Uh-oh. is the it it's the airport airport moniker for a brewery in mexico what, what, what airport is slw what makes like coleslaw san, or something san luis something <laughs> or other i've forgotten i'll have to look it up airport coleslaw airport yeah. coleslaw that's some of the okay. finest coleslaw you're going to get is at your airports. You'd think it'd be at a deli, but it is It is the airport deli where the slaw is, is pretty excellent. I'm convinced that's what gave me my worst case of La Trista ever, <laughs> um, where I had to take antibiotics that they warned you not to go out into sunlight with. Uh, <laughs> apparently, you'd catch fire. As you had a vampire? Yeah, I mean, something the, the the warning label on the antibiotics was just like, "Do not go out in sun." Yes, yes. Oh, well, there you go. That's, that's so. That's what happened. Yeah, yeah. And this was from Airport Coleslaw. I believe so. Yes, I either that or the uh, raw guava that a friend of mine had me try uh, the last morning we were there, but but. Um, but seeing how it didn't hit me till like the next day, I, I think it's more likely the airport coleslaw. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, you you know which airport has the finest airport coleslaw? I mean, based uh, on my research, I don't. In fact, I'm I'm interested to learn. I I would I would say it is a uh, good old Denver International. Oh yeah. Oh okay. And okay. yeah, you got to go to the far end of the uh, trail, which which. Uh, terminal it is but i think it's b it's a a complete opposite end Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. there's some fine coleslaw down there check it out 
Okay. I, I usually go to the um, the Singapore street food on the second floor uh, there above McDonald's. But uh, oh, right, right, yes, yeah. in the Singapore in the Changi Airport. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. That's that's quite the airport too. But you know, for slaw, just can't beat the uh, the good old uh, Denver International. I'll remember that. All right. You know who's also a great fan of uh, coleslaw? Our good friend John Blickman, perhaps? Absolutely. He, uh-huh. he is uh, quite the coleslaw uh, connoisseur. Uh, you know, makes it himself at home, uh, yeah. fills his bathtub with it and bathes in it. Um, yeah. Even a cabbage farmer, most likely. Yeah. <laughs> if, if Blickman was to farm anything, what would it be? I think I think it would be cabbage. Cabbages, cabbages, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. He likes spherical shaped things. He likes he likes balls of, of vegetable. His vegetable. He's Brussels sprouts. Uh, you know, artichokes a little bit. They're a little little pointy, but uh, cabbages. You know, that's that's him. You know, pumpkins. Um, you know, the, he, he he's you know the gourd family is okay, but. Generally, just the roundish ones, you know, not not the oblong ones. Right, well, right. He uh, has to do with shape, huh? Shape oh yeah, oh, yes, yes. Um, and he is, uh, you know, still making some excellent uh, brewing equipment too, uh, which probably mentioned. Uh, yes, he, he he's been known to do you know uh, five barrel batches of coleslaw. Yes, yes, he has professional slaw. Uh, making equipment if you're if you're uh, in need of slaw oh, expanded to the coleslaw industry huh oh well, it's indiana you know <laughs> you, you got to go with the, go for what the locals want right right right, right. you got to uh you got to get your uh get your stuff out there um you know make make what uh, the consumers are, are crazy for Oh, and they're crazy for the fine Blickman Engineering uh, brewing gear. You can check them out at BlickmanEngineering.com. Uh, send an email to feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com. And uh, that'll reach our good friend, John Blickman, who was paid for this show for way too long. I think it's clear it's good by, the, by the first uh, <laughs> 10 minutes of this show. <laughs> He's a good friend. And he enjoys he enjoys the slaw, you know, and the Teresa stories and uh, <laughs> spherical vegetables. So uh, check him out, support him if you can. Uh, he's a good guy. Uh, today, our good friend uh, Taylor Roach, is, uh, aka Porno Steve, has uh, graciously uh, come back to uh, say hi and, and see how we're doing and kind of join in. It's been a long time. Uh, you know what you've been up to last i heard you were you were off uh touring with uh, your band and yeah uh, yeah i went on like a two-year kind of touring run kind of ended up culminating in a month-long europe tour okay really cool man uh which which prison was this or <laughs> <laughs> that was in germany oh. that was in dusseldorf <laughs> good city good city yeah did you, did you enjoy the beer in in europe there oh yeah dude second to none man did you go down the altstadt in dusseldorf and uh yeah yeah dusseldorf for the all the alt beer they have there right yeah 
Colm for the Kolsch. Yeah. Yeah. Went everywhere, man. It's crazy. Uh, Frankfurt, Berlin, Hamburg. What's that little German town? Super East. Bunch of castles. It's like super medieval city. Nuremberg? Nuremberg was a place we went through. Yeah. Went over the UK. Took the train. Nice. Went there. Nottingham. Mm-hmm. Drove thick there because I was the you only American. Some traditional British Cascales. Yeah. Beer was great. Fish and chips, not not so good. <laughs> well, you gotta hit the right chip places. Yeah. You was, gotta, you gotta... I was very surprised. <laughs> There's good ones and bad ones. It's like yeah. pizza in America or burgers in America. That's you know? a good, right. good point. That's a good point. Yeah. Great ones. You can't expect them all to be be great. Right. That was it was a great time. Did that. Was broke for a while. Decided to stop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a great adventure. It was a great adventure. And what are you doing now? It's working at a brewery. I'm actually trying to get out of the industry. Yeah. Yep. I joined local 104. Uh, they're a sheet metal union. Mm-hmm. Bay Area. Gonna yeah, be an HVAC guy, I think. Yeah. Oh, okay. Trades work. Cool. Pays well. Yep. Beer industry does not pay. And the music no. industry does no. not pay. I mean, no. you know, both of them pay a very Ooh. few people. Yeah. They, you pay, know. They, pay in, they pay in different ways, but I'm just yes. I'm at the point where I'm I'm over it. I've been in I've been in it for what almost a decade now. I think it's been like eight years. Mm-hmm. Time to become a, an adult, a responsible adult. Yeah, I guess it's time to grow up. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, not too much. <laughs> yeah. Time for financial security, anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's more of the thing. Well, especially in in I'm in San Francisco still right and there's so many people that left the city mm. um and that's i've noticed pretty big difference in um you know hospitality stuff mm-hmm. how many people you can pack in a bar i mean not to mention there's capacity laws now mm-hmm. right so you can't you know pack a bunch of people in one place and make as much money anymore i mean i'm making like half of what i used to like mm. before the pandemic, it's just there's no money in it anymore. I mean, there always was no money in it, but now even more so. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Now, are you still brewing on your uh, your your Blickman equipment? Oh yeah, yep, yep, yeah. When I came up with you, I uh, shared some of that stout. Yeah. Right, it was good. Yeah, thanks. I gotta get going again. I mean, I. I just recently moved. I mean, I, and recently I've been in this, this place for six months. Mm-hmm. It takes a long time to kind of get settled. So, and I still got to figure out water and how to route everything. I don't know. Right. At the time to do another brew. Yeah. You, you, are you going to go up on the roof again and <laughs> run a hose from the bathroom up to the roof? And, right. uh... No, that was that was a necessity in my other spot, but here I actually have a backyard. So <laughs> ah, there you go. Yeah. I'll do it down. I just need some time to do it. So why not go back to the porn industry? The porn industry uh it's all dried know. up. It's all dried up, man. Yeah. Yeah. You never know. <laughs> right. Porn, no, STDs weren't weren't as big of a deal. You know, you, you get used to it. The whole uh-huh. COVID thing through a wrench. Right, right. Yeah, you can't cure COVID with uh, antibiotics. Nope. Right, right. You need uh, horse medication, apparently. 
ketamine. Dewormer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll have more porno Steve and your questions right after this. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. Chit chatting with uh, our good friend uh, Taylor uh, Roach, who's uh, living in San Francisco and sort of living yep. the dream. Dream is paying half of what it paid before. Because of the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. It's half a dream. And he's, he's living half a dream. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Yeah. So we have my, some good Q and A questions. I put on my cheaters. Ah, there we go. And uh, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, Dan asks, "I'm hoping someone can help me out with this. I'm making water adjustments for a barley wine that I'm about to brew. I can't get the RA residual alkalinity right out there into the recommended range for my SRM." Uh, while keeping the mash pH low enough. I've listened to all the water Ganza episodes and searched around on the internet, but have yet to come to a conclusion. Any help might save my head from bursting at this point. Okay. Well, um, residual alkalinity is not the goal. It is a tool. So the, the goal uh, for any beer style is... Uh, mash pH, getting in that 5.2 to 5.6 mash pH range as measured on a sample cooled to room temperature. So what you're doing when with a barley wine or any other style is trying to gauge how the, what the acidity of the specialty malts that you're adding to that beer are, to that grist, and where that mash pH is going to end up. And then you adjust your water accordingly. So um, American barley wine uh, could be 15, 20 SRM. Um, the, the guidelines for residual alkalinity versus beer color are just guidelines or suggestions. You know, what you need to do is measure your mash pH and uh, go from there. Um, you know, you never want to try to go too high with residual alkalinity. You don't really, I don't, even for imperial stouts, you don't want to go over a hundred residual alkalinity. Um, and for something like a barley wine, I would say, even though there's a lot of buffering capacity in that malt bill, um, I would think you wouldn't want to go over, say, 75 ppm as calcium carbonate for residual alkalinity. Um, generally, lower residual alkalinity is better. And uh, so somewhere 25 to 75 RA for that style would probably be appropriate. But again, that's not the goal. The goal is your mash pH. So measure that mash pH and be sure. There you go. Taylor, are you uh, adjusting your water there? You, you've got a fairly soft water in San Francisco, right? Comes from uh... yeah. I haven't even I haven't even messed with water yet. I'm yeah. not even not even there. Honestly, right. I've, been, I've focused more on 
uh, the cold side of things. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I yeah. agree. Yeah, and the beer you brought me, I, I didn't think it needed any water adjustments. Tasted great. Yeah. yeah. Most waters work. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately. All right. Uh, Clayton is asking about uh, storage temperature and aging. He says, uh, I was talking to a worker at my local Total Wine and More store and asked why they don't refrigerate all their beer. He brought up cost of such a large refrigerator and further conversation, the topic of putting the same beer in and out of the fridge multiple times throughout the course of that beer's duration at the store and the debate of will several drastic temperature changes adversely affect beer flavoring. Then listening to a Bruce Strong show recently, and you brought up that wine requires minor fluctuations to help it age, but since beer doesn't need aging, it's bad for beer to fluctuate, especially several times from 40 degrees to 80 degrees and back. Was that lead up long enough? Let's see. My question, if you had to drink one of two shallow grave porters that had been in a store for two months, would you pick the one that stayed constant at 70-ish or one that spent half the time in the fridge, but by of one week in the fridge, one week out, one week in, one week out. Um, wouldn't the one that spent the most time at cooler temps still be less aged and oxidized, regardless of temperature fluctuation? What about the same question of twin or cousin, which is the, the hoppier beers that we have? Uh, which example uh, would have the most best hop character remaining after two months? Uh, sorry if I'm freaking you out about your poor 22 ounce babies after they leave your brewery. I'm sure they're all well kept. In fact, the only heretic beer I saw in the store was in the fridge. Uh, thank you, Clayton. Um, so the issue with, um, you know, the temperature swings a lot of times on, um, I know it does have an impact on staling and, uh, but, uh, one of the issues with a crown capped, uh, bottle is if you go extreme temperatures, um, I believe there's, you know, you get more oxygen ingressing through the, the liner in and then out through. Yeah. They still breathe. Right. Uh, slightly you get diffusion across the the membrane i think um whereas if it was canned uh, i don't think it's as much of a deal i would say i don't think most stores put them in the fridge and then take them back out of the fridge once they go in the fridge they stay in the fridge until they're sold um it's a hypothetical (laughs) right um but which one would be better i think in a can uh let's say the the top temperature was the same right uh, mm-hmm. let's say he used 70 and they used 80, but let's say the top temperature is 80 and the store is 80, the, you know, um, and for some reason they're taking it in and out. I, I probably would go with, you know, if it's in a can, I would probably go with the one that spent more time cold. And even in the bottle, it still might be better. You know, if you get 50% of the time cold versus, you know, the damage of the, the temperature swing, it depends, you know, I guess the fridge would probably be at fridge temperatures. Maybe we're talking 37, 38 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. Let's say the store at 80 would be pretty hot. I mean, most stores, you know, um, I think if you're doing swings like, you know, a hundred 
you know, Fahrenheit, 110 Fahrenheit down to, you know, 28 Fahrenheit, you do that a few times, I think you might end up with some problems. Um, but I'm not sure. I, I would, I would go with the one that's just sat in the, the fridge the most. Yeah, I would too. Um, you know, I think he brought up the question of wine and I think that's, that's, I would, I would think more from a barrel or a corked wine potentially mm-hmm. situation, which do not apply to bottles, beer bottles in the right. market. Um, yeah, so I, in general, I'm not aware of a chemical reaction mechanism that would respond to, you know, cold, you know, refrigerator to room temp swings. I, I don't, I can't think of uh, something that would trigger as a result of that change. So I think it comes back to simply less time at higher temperatures is better mm-hmm. for shelf stability. And the oxidation and aging or staling, I mean. Yeah, I think part of it is, you know, on the bottles, the crown caps, you go back to that. Whereas yeah. the cans, you get that uh, that seal. Total seal, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's an interesting question, mm-hmm. uh, Clayton. And so, you know, perhaps. If you had yeast in the, in the bottle, yes. that could be another aspect, another factor to be considered. Right. And pretty much every craft beer out there has yeast in it. Yeah. So unless they're, they're sterile filtering and removing all stripping out all the yeast. There's always some yeast mm. in every beer. It's, you know, minor, but uh, there yeah. is always, always some. So it could still produce. Yeah. If there was still yeast in there, it could still produce compounds because it's being stressed out by the fluctuation in temperatures. Right. You could end up with more yeast autolysis perhaps. And maybe get some additional off flavors due to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Vernon writes, uh, do you know if iodophore loses its potency with time? I have noticed that after 15 to 20 minutes of sanitizing my equipment, the water iodophore soup changes from light amber color to clear. Is the iodophore losing its potency or is the color nothing to worry about? Thanks for all of the help that you guys provide. Okay. Quiz, Taylor. I don't think it does. Wrong. Huh. Yeah, if, if the iodophore loses color, it's lost potency. Really? Um, yeah. And now why his, his solution is losing color after half an hour, I don't know. Um, in well, the case... Being, being used up. Yeah, know, I mean, if he has a lot of, uh, uh, you know... Um, organic. Organic load in, so he's not it's important that you clean your equipment first and make sure you've removed all the, uh, you know, protein, other organic materials off of that equipment before you sanitize. If your sanitizer, especially iodophore is going clear on you that quickly, uh, there's an issue, or maybe you're in a hot environment. The active ingredient in iodophore is what gives it the color. Um, it's, and if, if it goes clear, you, you have an issue. Um, if you're using something like a uh, star sand or whatever it is, uh, you know, one of the others, that's clear. It's more pH based, but the iodophore, um, the color, the interesting thing about iodophore, um, is it will lose its efficacy, um, even sitting in the bottle for long enough. And hmm. I I've seen where the bottle, um, sitting, you know, room temperature, 
for a year or two, the, the, the actual uh, IOTA 4 will come out of um, like those five-star containers. It'll come out of it and uh, stain the wall it's sitting next to. Oh, wow. So it's, it's that uh, volatile. It, it can work its way out of the, the container. Wow. I've got a stained wall. I can, I can show you. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, it's 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 quite a quite an ingredient. It's very effective, and uh, but yeah, you, you need to have a bit of color. Do you have any right. stained walls, Taylor? You have any wall stains? Um, yeah, not in this room. Is that called a, a misshoot in the in the porn industry, or what is that called? <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a retake, redo, retake. Well, you know who uh, knows a lot about stained walls? I mean, uh, Iota 4 and other sanitizers is our good friends at Brew Chatter. Oh, yes. Josh and RJ, they run a great, great shop up there. Uh, they have uh, all sorts of creative things going on. Actually, uh, one of the things that we're doing um, tomorrow at Heretic is a brew with Brew Chatter. And we are going to um, use the Hornendal yeast. Oh, and cool. mosaic hops. And because of that, we're going to call it Mo Horny. <laughs> so I'm excited to, uh, to brew that with them. And then uh, we're going to put it in cans. Uh, we're going to have that out available up there in, uh, out of their shop in uh, Sparks, Nevada, Reno. And then uh, we'll fun. have it available at Heretic too. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a, oh, a Be sure to say hi for me when they come down. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I'll be up there, I think it's October 16th uh, to, for the release of the beer. We're going to have a little party, and they're going to also um, uh, have people homebrew it uh, there at the shop. So we're going to be uh, homebrewing the, uh, the Mo Horny uh, at the shop. Huh? A lot of fun. It's going to be, nice. gonna be uh, you know, kind of like a Viking IPA. All excited about that. Yeah, those good folks at uh, Brew Chatter, they help sponsor this show. They'll pay for it. And uh, good folks, if you if you need a homebrew stuff and uh, you want to see them, uh, go check it out. Good folks. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll have more of your questions right after this. Are you looking for a simple brewing system that's great for all grain brewing, but everything on the market seems to be full of compromises? Blickman Engineering has the answer. The Blickman Brew Easy All Grain Brewing System. The Brew Easy is a complete system with easy upgrades and a beautiful compact design, perfect for any size brewing location. At its core, the Brew Easy is built on two gorgeous Blickman Boilermaker brew kettles, a high temperature March pump, and either a top tier gas burner or the new boil coil electric heater. The Brew Easy adapter lid allows the pots to stack on top of each other, forming an efficient, strong, and compact brewing setup that comes in 5, 10, and 20-gallon batch sizes. Upgrade your BrewEasy system with full automated control by adding a Blickman Tower of Power temp controller and make moving around easy with the Blickman Kettle Cart. The BrewEasy is modular. If you already own a Boilermaker kettle, you can build your BrewEasy by purchasing just the modules you need. The new BrewEasy all-grain brewing system. See it today at BlickmanEngineering.com and brew with Blickman quality on your new BrewEasy. Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys. Brew strong. All right, we're back. We're talking with our, our good friend uh, Taylor Roach, uh, who worked on the show for years, I want to say. Yeah, it was like yeah. three years. 
three years. Uh, and uh, became a beloved uh, part of the show, also known as Porno Steve. If you haven't heard those episodes, you should go back. Some of our finest work, I think, truly in the Porno Steve <laughs> era. What do we got there next? Uh, let's see here. Kyle also has a question about aging beer. Um, Hello there. I was just wondering if you had ever covered the topic of storing beer or if you plan to address this in the future. Thanks, Kyle. Uh, Hollister. Um, I, I think we have talked about yeah. um, uh, aging beer, barrel aging. I think we, mm-hmm. we covered every kind of aging, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, one of the things I think about, uh, you know, aging, uh, beer is a friend of mine, uh, Dave Techham, uh, he had uh, stored under his house, uh, you know, the cool of the, you know, the crawl space under his house, um, mm-hmm. bottles of, uh, famous British brewery, um, you know, bar- barley wine, Oh, um, and then stopped in like mm-hmm. the late nineties. Um, I'm getting old. Anyways, he pulled out like a, you know, a vertical tasting and, um, of 20 years or whatever, which is really thrilled to be a part of. And, um, it's interesting, you know, no matter how you store beer, I think, you know, a lot of it depends on the beer going into it, yeah. whether it's going to be appropriate to age not every beer ages well and you know even styles that should age well if they're not brewed right won't age well um but you know interesting things if there's you know brett or bacteria or other things um you know I, i think a lot of how the beer was produced really and how good a beer it is really affects uh, the storage and the, the quality of storage hmm. um, storage is kind of an addition uh, additional you know flavor and character but can be um, you know a little uh, rough if, if the original beer is not so good mm-hmm. yeah yeah there's a lot of uh, oxidation compounds esterification of higher alcohols that can occur um, creation of um, different uh, aromas and flavors but yeah so I think it helps if it's a if it's a darker beer where you can you know understand this uh, you know raisin and plum character that develops as being complementary to the overall character of the beer um, you know, a raisin plum character in a pale beer would be odd. Whereas in a dark beer, it's kind of complimentary. Well, you may not even get those compounds in a pale yeah. beer, you know? It, yeah. So it depends a lot on the beer. I'd say, um, you know, kind of go back in the archives and, and find that, uh, that episode. I think we, we covered it yeah. uh, pretty much in depth, but uh, the things to concern yourself with are temperature, you know, and swings in temperature, oxygen, Uh, you know and obviously uh light if you're using uh you know a bottle even a brown bottle and be be careful light uh can do do terrible things as well yeah 
Question about uh, Jamel's uh, all grain blonde ale recipe. Uh, Tom writes, hi there, brewed Sunday, the all grain recipe for Jamel's famous blonde. I had some distractions on brew day and I didn't realize the recipe calls for a 90 minute boil and the first hop addition at 60 minutes. Well, I only boiled for 60 minutes and added the first top addition at the beginning. So utilization should be the same, but what about the shorter boil time? Will this have much effect on the final beer? If so, what? Thanks in advance, Tom. Um, so first I thought he was talking about American Blonde, which, okay. and, I'm, and I'm assuming this is Brewing Classic Styles he's talking about, maybe not um, my um, Brew Your Own articles. Oh. But then I realized, oh, he's probably talking about the Belgian blonde. Um, right. Okay. And that uses Pilsner malt uh, in the all grain version. If you're using Pilsner malt, that's why it suggests a 90 minute boil to drive off, uh, to convert the SMM and drive it off um, in yeah. the boil. So you don't end up with DMS, which is kind of a corn, uh, canned corn kind of uh, character. Yeah. Um, so that would be what I would expect. Um, yeah, you might end up with a bit of DMS in the finished beer if you only did 60 minutes. Yeah, an American blonde, not too big a deal, but in a Belgian blonde, it would be definite off flavor. And the thing is, um, you know, the uh, it, it's really based off of the color of the malt you're using. So a really pale super pale, pale, uh, malt, you know, two row, um, even though it's not called Pilsner, um, could, yeah. you know, have DMS issues, yeah. a Pilsner malt that's killed a little darker, you know, let's say two love of bond and above probably doesn't have a whole lot of, uh, DMS issues. It's a really pale stuff that does Yeah, paler, the, the malt, uh, the, the less kilning it's had, you know, that's why you might extend your, your boil. Yeah. The, um, you see some uh, stout malts marketed these days, which are a very pale uh, mm. malt. And those would have the same issue, uh, less SMM, um, uh, you know, denatured during kilning and more boiling time would be needed to drive it off. Mm-hmm. from the beer mm-hmm. now uh, taylor have you br- tried brewing anything with uh, like a light pilsner malt any any lighter colored beers uh nothing with a pilsner malt i think i did a hazy ipa like when was this december 2019 yeah december 2019 so a couple years ago i think we used something from like from the R two row or something, two or Admiral Maltings. Yeah, I think it was just oh. two row. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, probably probably no issues there. Yeah, no. I think, I think we just did a standard sixty minute. Sixty minute. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, there's a number of values to uh, the boil time. Curtis and Tara, right? John, Jamel, and Justin. Who's Justin? <laughs> I don't know. I remember anybody called Justin. Oh, oh, no, now I remember Justin. Thanks so much for the very informative show. I've been going back through the podcast and have been learning so much. I have two questions I'm hoping you can help me out with. 
Uh, number one, I just got listening to the cleaning show and I wondered if it's necessary to clean your boil kettle and all fittings and the immersion chiller with PBW after every brief session. I always scrub my boil kettle after each use, but I have never cleaned my immersion chiller. I put my immersion chiller in the boil kettle about 15 minutes before the end of the boil and circulate it through a Jamel type or circulation system using a March pump. Now think about it. I have never cleaned the pump either. I have always figured that 15 minutes at boiling temperature sanitized everything. But after listening about the importance of cleaning, even over sanitizing, I'm wondering if I could be susceptible to infection from bacteria or something hiding under the bits of crud on my immersion chiller or inside the pump. Based on what I heard, I should soak everything in PBW and right through the pump after every brew session. Please let me know what you believe to be best practice. Well, I mean, one of the, the best practices is to clean all your equipment, including the, the, the chiller. Um, you know, the immersion chiller, because of the acidity of the, the wort, it tends to be fairly bright and, and shiny. Um, but, uh, you know, where it transitions from the top of the wort to the pieces coming up to connect to your, your water and all that. Um, it tends to get build up some crud there. So at the very least, you should be scrubbing and cleaning that that part. And yeah. it doesn't hurt to give it a, a clean every once in a while. Um, he's right that, you know, at boiling temperatures for 15 minutes, you're really not going to have much of an infection problem. Right. But, you know, that crud that builds up inside the pump, um, on the immersion chiller, in the kettle, it does have other negative effects in that um, it can, um, you know, slow the speed of your pump. It can impact the effectiveness of the immersion chiller on chilling because you're building up material on there that kind of insulates it. Um, you know, they're, they're fairly minor effects, but, you know, keep your equipment in good shape, keep it clean, um, you know, and it'll, it'll serve you better. It'll, it'll function like it, it does from the beginning. Um, if you don't, uh, you know, uh, keep it clean, um, you know, you'll eventually have problems, but, um, I don't think you need to do a massive clean of the, the immersion chiller, um, every brew. I mean, I would just make sure it all looks good. If it's building up, you know, black crud on it or something, you know, take a scrubby to it. And, and uh, I don't think there'd be more of a problem with the pump itself rather than the immersion chiller. Because immersion chiller, I mean, you can obviously see everything. It's pretty out in the open. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there wouldn't be necessarily, especially for 15 minutes of the boil and it's all coming through. I mean, if it's not like a full boil and you're going to kill anything, anything comes in contact with. But you just yeah. don't want any other crud coming out or your pump being blocked. That, that's what I could mm -hmm. kind of think about. Yeah. You do have a bunch of crud building up, even if it's not alive or living organic at all. I mean, you're still got buildup down there <laughs> right that's just never good anyway yeah. well and you can take apart the head of the march pump you know yeah uh, i would i would take that apart every you know at least once a brewing season you know yeah um and check the impeller see if it's getting worn see if bits are breaking off or it's you know become uh really uh, stiff and uh not not effective anymore and you can you know replace that part um uh you know i think that that's yeah good maintenance as well 
Yeah, I'll, I'll bring up the corrosion aspects of uh, cleaning immersion chillers. Um, if, you have, if you have wort left on the immersion chiller that you don't get completely hosed off, that can mold. You mm-hmm. know, and sure. it, once it molds, you start getting deeper corrosion of the copper. It'll, it'll eat into the metal. Yeah. And you can have some permanent stains. You can end which will be hard to clean next time because they'll be slightly pitted, you know, microscopically. Um, it just makes the whole thing harder and harder to clean and, and know that you're not contributing excess, you know, copper oxide into the words and other sort of issues with corrosion. So uh, yeah, make sure you get that immersion chiller thoroughly you know, rinsed off, wiped down after brewing with it. Because yeah, I mean, I've, I've thought that I've cleaned everything well. And then, you know, a week later, you have to pass by, pass by in the garage and look at it. It's like, it's got some black spots. So um, yeah, just watch out for that. Mm-hmm. Pumps, of course, if you allow um, mold to build up in them, you don't clean them. Uh, you know, at some point you may decide to to use a counterflow or something like that. And next thing you know, you've, you've pumped mold into your brew. Mm-hmm. So yeah, right. as, as he says, make sure you keep your pumps clean. Yeah. And, you know, don't have to, you know, get nuts about it, but uh, right. you know, it's, it's, it's good practice to maintain your equipment. Uh, his second question, which is in violation of the rules of question asking, uh, you're supposed to one, one question per email, but he did number them. Nicely, That's one good. and two, yeah. which is helpful. Gives uh, us the option. Yes. I have been using a 70-quart extreme Coleman cooler as a mash tun for many years. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm now wondering if the inside of the cooler is food grade. I know the 10-gallon ra- round coolers that beer supply stores are made for water, but what about rectangular coolers like mine? I'm especially concerned because I'm holding 152-degree water in the cooler for 90 minutes or so. I do 12 gallon batches. So the cooler is usually full to the top. I have uh, the option to use a stainless steel pot as a mash tun, but I have my batch barging system dialed in very well. My wife is very concerned about the safety of leaching plastics in our drinking containers. I was thinking of switching it uh, to better bottles for fermenting. And she raised concern about that. And then I thought about the cooler issue I'm asking about. I tried to search the Coleman website for any food grade info, but couldn't find anything. Please let me know if this cooler presents a possibility of leaching nasty stuff into my work. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the thing about plastics, even the food grade plastics, um, you will be leaching plastic materials into your work. Um, they're considered food grade because the materials that leach out of it are considered not harmful to humans in the quantities that you would get them. And I would say that that is designed at a certain temperature range. So those coolers, um, some of them are meant to only hold cold liquids, which leaches less. Um, some of them are designed for cold or hot liquids, um, you know, like coffee or something like that. Um, so it is leaching something, but, um, the thing is, if you've been using it for many years, you've probably already taken all the stuff out of it that's going to come out of it. The yeah. plasticizers, the cut stuff that keeps it flexible and all that, that's what comes out of it. That's why they become brittle over time. 
because that stuff leaches out of it. And um, uh, so, uh, you know, personally, the alcohol in it is probably worse for you than the plasticizers that are coming out of it. Yeah. Alcohol's <laughs> toxic. Um, so if, if it were me, I really wouldn't worry about it. Um, depends how old you are. I mean, I'm going to die of other stuff. So the amount of plastic I could get out of a cooler, I could probably eat a cooler liner and you know, that's not going to do me in. Right. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's all, you know, up to, up to your own choice. And, um, but definitely it's extracting. Uh, yeah. The, the, the minor amounts over time, I think are pretty benign. Um, well, and a lot of it will be taken up by the yeast. Uh, I would yeah, think yeah. and uh, the yeast will take it out. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I wouldn't worry about it either. Um, as you say, the alcohol is, is right. a much more, uh, much higher concentrations and so on. Yes. Well, and, uh, you know, in the mash, uh, some will get the, that plasticizer stuff. We, I'm sure it gets stuck to the grain and get left behind. You draw out the liquid, then you boil it. I'm sure that coagulates some of it or, you know, does something to it as well. And then the yeast, um, yeah. and the, you know, the tube and then the yeast, um, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for it to be removed. Uh, I, I'd, I'd be curious to see a study of, uh, you know, what exactly it is and how much gets, uh, makes it through the entire process. Uh, mm. but my guess is it'd probably be pretty low. And especially if you've been using it for many years, I, I wouldn't yeah. worry about it. And, yeah. you know, I wouldn't worry about the better bottles either. Um, they're, um, polycarbonate, right. Mm-hmm. They're not a, um, polyethylene. Yeah. Right. So I, I think that they're, um, you know, they make, um, polycarbonate, uh, you know, utensils, um, and stuff. Yeah. So that you put in your mouth. And so I, I wouldn't worry about that, especially at the temperatures, fermenting temperatures. Um, I think those are a good product. Um, yeah, I think I would just go for it and don't drink too much alcohol because that's yeah. toxic for you. Avoid those hot dog eating contests because the nitrates will get you, but I wouldn't worry about the BPA. <laughs> right. There you go. All right. Let's take one more short break. We'll be back right after this. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're uh, talking with a good friend, uh, Porno Steve. He's decided to leave the porn industry and go into uh, sheet metal work. Sheet that metal was about time, you know. Yeah. I bet some of those guys are going to recognize me, so. Right, know. right. Mm-hmm. Can only It'll run be... so far. You'll be laying laying duct. Is that what's going to happen? <laughs> Hanging duct. Well, I was, I was wondering, what, you know, is, is sheep metal a new music genre or? Uh... Oh yeah, right. Probably. <laughs> you, you play some sheet metal. Yeah, that sounds like a classical metal. Sheet <laughs> metal. <laughs> All right, uh, James writes, uh, guys, see the following topic from the forum 
This might be a good update to the water shows as most homebrewers that I know use Ward Labs and probably don't know about this item that AJ DeLang uh, is discussing. Aaron quotes, perhaps everyone except me already knows this, but I just discovered yesterday that Ward's, Ward Labs reports list sulfate as sulfur, i.e. the milligrams per liter number means the milligrams of sulfur in the, in the sulfate, not the mass of sulfate ions themselves. The popular spreadsheets calculate sulfate as sulfate, which makes more sense to me. Before entering your reported sulfate number into one of these spreadsheets, convert as sulfur to as sulfate by multiplying by three. Yep, I knew that. Did you tell everybody? Yeah, yeah. It's did, you on, bring, did you bring enough uh, for everyone? I believe it's on page, well, it's in chapter 22, yeah. There you go. It's in chapter 22 of the water book or how to brew? How to brew. It may be in the water book as well, because I, I, I do know that I, that has come up before. Yep. There you go. I, I, I can look it up. But. And now everybody knows on the show. <laughs> yeah, multiply by three if it's as sulfur. There you go. All right. One last question. Miles asks, hey, guys, first off, love your shows. Listen every day, literally a show a day when I walk my dog. I'm running out, so you need to come out with more. Uh, some questions about hop utilization. I was wondering if there was a difference in how hops are utilized, depending on whether someone uses a wort chiller or an ice bath. I'm thinking that even if hops are thrown in at flame out, you could still be extracting bitterness for a while if you're using an ice bath, ice bath, since it does not cool for a while. Does that make sense? If so, how could I adjust my recipes when I use an ice bath? I'm not even sure if my question makes sense, but I hope it does. And if it's been answered, please just point me in the right direction. Thanks, Miles. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's one of the things I've always said is uh, when we did the Can You Brew It shows, the questions I asked the, the, the pro brewers were, not so much, you know, the size of things that was just to get, you know, the ratio of, uh, you know, grains and hops and all that. And, um, it was the time people were always thinking that, Oh, uh, you know, in a pro brew setup, they get more utilization of hops and they get more bittering. That's why when they give me their recipe, you know, it's, you know, uh, I need to add more hops cause I don't get that. And what it was is, you know, they'd have their boil time and maybe the boil time was different, but then they have the transfer to the whirlpool, which, you know, pumping it over takes 20 minutes, 30 minutes. That's at hot at boiling temperatures. Yeah. And that's, that's extracting more bitterness. And mm -hmm. then the, the, the whirlpool stand that's extracting more bitterness. So I always needed to know the full time between, you know, for their, for their boil for their transfer, for their knockout. And I asked those questions because that time made a difference. Now in the ice bath scenario, um, you know, it cools from, you know, the outside very slowly into the center. So it's difficult to give you an exact number. Uh, but, you know, if you're whirlpooling it and use a whirlpool chiller, and once you get below about 175 degrees Fahrenheit, you can assume isomerization stops. So with the ice bath, um, what would you say, John? Um, I don't know how to, how to calculate it. Yeah. I mean, you, the reaction kinetics for isomerization 
you know, according to a model that was published by Shellhammer and Malawiki, um, it can go down as, as low as 150 degrees or even 140, I think. Mm. Um, but, you know, after 175, it really, it's an exponential curve or, you know, mm-hmm. so it really nosedives in terms of the right. amount of isomerization. It's like, you know, f- less than 5% of what you would get if it were actually boiling for the same amount of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, very small amount. So, um, yeah, once you get below 175, it really falls off right um but it's a time it's a time for time thing so think of it and maybe in terms of you know 50 percent of what you get for that same amount of boiling time 30 percent 20 percent as you decrease temperature Mm -hmm. right and uh just keep in mind that you know a boiling temperature is essentially you know extracting like actual boiling does the the action of boiling, the, the, the turbulence in there helps spread uh, everything throughout the liquid and makes, you know, the um, extraction of the compounds easier, but you've already done that. It's all throughout the um, yeah. liquid already. And so, uh, you know, at, at hot temperatures is just like boiling. Add that to your time when you're calculating and you're using a calculator you know, if you're sitting 20 minutes, uh, you know, running it through a, uh, you know, a plate chiller uh, or 30 minutes, those 30 minutes, that liquid is, um, you know, isomerizing more uh, alpha acids and uh, mm-hmm. more better. So use that in your, in your calculation. All right. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Taylor, Porno Steve, for uh, joining us. And uh, thank you to our fine sponsors, uh, Blickman Engineering and uh, Brew Chatter. Uh, Make sure to to reach out to those uh, folks and uh, support them. And uh, if you're listening live, stay tuned. We're going to uh, have another show. Uh, Taylor, are you going to join us for that one or are you going to run? I think I got time. You guys got time? All right. Let's do this. We'll end this show here. And then, uh, like I said, if you listen live, stay tuned. Uh, you can ask your questions in the, in the comments section of the, uh, of the video. You click on the comments, and then uh, Mr. John Palmer is, is watching those. One question was, will the, uh, the uh, Mo Horney be uh, available in the Cleveland area? If we end up brewing a larger batch of it later, yes. Uh, we'll, 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 get, we'll get it out to distribution. But the first batch is just going to be five barrels, and we'll... We'll suck that all down in the tap room and at uh, Brew Chatter. Uh, but uh, we like the concept so much, we may we may go ahead and uh, uh, do a larger batch of it and get it out there. All right. Till then, everybody. Brew strong. Brew strong, everyone. Brew strong.